Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm going to cover in this audio 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-12. through 12. I've entitled this section of Scripture, Born Again to a Living Hope. Let's start out with some introductory material. First of all, who's the author of the book? Well, he identifies himself as Peter, the famous apostle. And there's much internal and external authority that Peter was the author, so we're not going to doubt that. Some, however, say that the polished Greek that we see in 1 Peter excludes Peter from the authorship. The answer to that is he's probably using Silas to help him. Remember, Peter was just a rude fisherman before he became famous, and he probably wasn't too educated, and his, and his Greek might not have been all that good. But he probably used Silas to help him because we read in 1 Peter 5, verse 12, I have written you this brief letter through Silvanus. Silvanus is another word for Silas. I have written you this brief letter through Sylvanus. So Sylvanus most probably helped him polish up the Greek. And this would explain 1 Peter's polished Greek and 2 Peter's rough Greek. Because Peter didn't have Silas to help him on 2 Peter, so he wrote it himself and the, the Greek was a little bit rough. Oftentimes people will do this to deny that the same author wrote 1 and 2 Peter. I don't believe that. I believe Peter wrote both of the Gospels. The date of this letter, 1 Peter, is somewhere in the early 60s. It can't be earlier than the 60s because Peter shows familiarity with Paul's prison letters. And, of course, Paul's prison letters can't be dated earlier than 60 A.D. And the date of 1 Peter can't be later than 67 or 68 because Peter was martyred somewhere around that time during Nero's reign. So we know it's somewhere in the 60s. The place of writing is what Peter calls a Babylon. First Peter 5.13, the church in Babylon, also chosen, sends you greeting, as does Mark, my son. Well, I have an opinion on what that is, but the commentators split all over the place. Here's one option. It's a Babylon in Egypt, which was a military post. Why would Peter be there? I don't know. The famous Mesopotamian Babylon on the Euphrates River, you know, the same Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar ruled in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Again, what was Peter doing there? I don't know. The fourth, the third option would be Rome. The church in Rome sends you greetings. This would assume that Peter was in Rome, but we don't think Peter was in Rome until much later than when he wrote the book, although that's a live possibility, so we'll go with that as a possibility. However, I think the answer is, is Jerusalem. Babylon is symbolic of Jerusalem because it keeps its saints in bondage in exile, and that makes a lot of sense because the whore of Babylon in Revelation is Jerusalem, the whore that rides on the beast, the beast, the seven-horned, ten-headed beast, which is Rome, and then Jerusalem was riding on that beast because she was so tied to Roman to the Roman Empire, she's called a whore, the whore of Babylon. So I'm going to assume that Peter is writing from Jerusalem, although, of course, that is controverted. Notice that Peter calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the apostle of Jesus Christ, the Pope. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the vicar of Christ on earth, as the Roman Catholics like to elevate him to. Who's Peter writing to? To the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus. A temporary resident is an alien, a foreigner, dispersed in Pontus. Well, first of all, let's talk about where this dispersion is. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All those are in present-day Turkey. Anatolia, the, the land region called Anatolia. So let me briefly go through this with you. Pontus is in the northern part of present-day Turkey on the southern coast of the Black Sea in the center. Galatia is basically in the center of, the, of Turkey. It also goes up to the northeast and hits to the easternmost part of the southern shore of the Black Sea. 
and Galatia extends all the way down through the center of Turkey down to the coastal provinces of Pamphylia and Cilicia, Lycia, Pamphylia, and Cilicia on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. So just roughly Galatia is in the middle. Cappadocia is, to the, is the eastern part of Turkey. Asia is the western part of Turkey on the Aegean Sea, the coast of which is on the Aegean Sea. So all of these provinces are well known. If you read enough ancient history, they'll be like your local local town and your local state. They're so so common. Bithynia, I didn't mention Bithynia. That's in the northwest corner of present-day Turkey, where Troy was, right there on the Dardanelles, the Sea of Marmara, the Bosphorus in that area. These were Jews that were sent all that were all over there, all over the the Anatolian region, they were dispersed there. How did they get dispersed? Well, first of all, let's consider the option of what a temporary resident is. The NIV says strangers in the world, which makes it mean his readers, Peter's readers, are those who are temporarily residing on earth, but their home is in heaven. In other words, all of us are aliens. All of us are temporary residents. I don't believe that's what Peter meant. I believe he's talking about Jews who had been dispersed to these regions of Anatolia, these regions of present-day Turkey. It's Jews, not Christians in general. John Gill agrees with that. So does Adam Clark, or at least they mention that as a liable, viable option. Here's some options as to why these Jews would have been dispersed up there. The persecution that happened on the death of Stephen could be one way that they managed to find their way into these provinces of the Roman Empire in Turkey, Acts 8.1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. That's Stephen. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So, once they were scattered through Judea and Samaria, they might have kept right on going and ended up in Turkey. John Gill suggests it could be that the Jews who were exiled from the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of northern Israel, when they were scattered in 722 by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom was destroyed, they could have been scattered on up there into, out to the west all the way into Anatolia. Now, these people who had been scattered, however they got there in these provinces of Anatolia, they came back to Pentecost, came back to Jerusalem at Pentecost, Acts 2.9. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia are three of the districts in, in Anatolia. Now, it's reasonable to me that Peter is addressing Jewish Christians, not, not all Christians who are temporary residents on this earth, but whose eternal home is in heaven, as the NIV Study Bible suggests. No, I don't think so. I think it's reasonable that Peter would be addressing Jewish Christians because Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, he was the Except maybe for James, he was one of the Jewish of the Jewish believers. Now, this dispersion that's mentioned in these provinces of the Roman Empire accords with both scripture, accords with other scriptures. John 7:35. Then the Jews said to one another, "Where does he, Jesus, intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? So you see that Hellenistic culture that was all around. Jews constantly found their way amongst those Greeks. The Jews were called the dispersion ever since the Babylonian captivity, where they were dispersed into the world around them. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Of course, he's uh, probably talking about 
the new Israel, 12 tribes being put in the place of the church, to the church in the dispersion, the Jewish Christians in the dispersion. So the dispersion was a well-known term. Jews were scattered everywhere. I remember reading in a different context the church historian Troch, I don't know how to say his name, T-R-O-E-L-T-S-H, Troch, who was unfortunately a liberal, but he's a well-known church historian. He said that there was probably 10% of every city in the Roman Empire, he's talking about in Turkey, in Anatolia, every city had at least 10% Jews. The Jews were everywhere. They were also in Rome, all the way over into Italy. Now, this idea about it being a foreigner, we see that in the Old Testament, as well as in the book of Hebrews. First Chronicles 29, 15. For we live before you, God, as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence, as well as all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. So when you're dispersed and when you're a foreigner, it's not quite as good as being a citizen. Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a foreigner residing with you, a temporary resident like all my fathers. So you see... The author of the psalm there thinks that it's a sad thing to be a foreigner, a temporary resident. And then in Hebrews 13, 14, For we do not have an enduring city here, instead we seek the one to come. So there's the idea that when you are an alien, a temporary resident, a foreigner, you don't quite feel as comfortable as you do when you're at home. Now, I've been a resident alien, a foreigner for years. I lived in China for roughly 20 years. And you always felt a little bit insecure. you got to take your passport to get a cell phone. Oh, they're taking your picture so they can put it in their database. Oh, you got to take your passport to get a mail out of the mailbox. And who is that person? Are they reporting to the Communist Party block authorities? Oh, my goodness, the police just came and visited me at 9 o'clock at night. And I got a stack of Bibles in this apartment. Oh, my gosh. You know, you never quite feel as home as you do here in the good old USA, where, of course, the Twitter mob comes after you. But... Relatively speaking, relatively safe here so far. We go now to 1 Peter 1, verse 2, which is in the middle of a sentence. So let me go back to the end of verse 1, and we read this. Peter, to the temporary residents, dot, 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 chosen. Oh, I left out the word chosen. I shouldn't have done that. This is verse 1, chosen. That means the elect. That is a word that the New Testament writers never shied away from. They talked about it all the time. Think about the last time you heard your preacher or your Bible teacher talk about you being in the elect. Why is it that only Presbyterians do that? What happened to the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the Methodists? Why can't you use that word chosen just a little bit more often? Is it because of your Arminian prejudices, perhaps? I'll just leave that to you for a provocative thought. We go now to verse 2, 1 Peter 1. Chosen is in verse 1, and then here in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. So you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit, for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now let's look at that word foreknowledge. Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out correctly that foreknowledge is the same as foreordination. When you're God, you know something's going to happen. That means you made it happen. Now I know Armenians are going to object to that, but I philosophically I don't see how you get around that. If God knows that something's going to happen, that means it's because he controls the future and he knows it's going to happen because he made it happen. Now, for those of you who are not interested in philosophical arguments, here's some scripture that proves exactly the same thing. Acts 2.23, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan. This is Peter, his Pentecostal sermon. He's preaching to the unbelieving Jews. And he says, though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan. So God determined it. His determined plan and what? Foreknowledge. So here we've got 
predetermination and foreknowledge right there in the same breath, in the same phrase. Why? Because when God foreknows something, he foreordains something. There ain't no difference. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and that's good, the fact that we're chosen, elect from God, that ought to make you thankful and not proud because you did deserve to get chosen. And you think, why God? Why did you choose me? I, you know, any Christian ought to ask himself, ask himself that periodically. I know I have. And you think, why? Man, it could, I could have been somebody like my father who didn't believe. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience. Well, let's see. We've got God the Father, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. The Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, those are all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned here. As the NIV Study Bible points out, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the redemption of the elect. Now, according to God's foreknowledge or foreordination, God the Father set apart by the Spirit, set us apart, set the believers apart. What does set apart mean? Well, that's just another way of saying sanctified. Because what is, or to be made holy, because to be made holy, to be made holy means to set apart from the world and, and dedicate to God. In fact, the NIV version translates this verse this way, you are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which I think is a little bit better translation than set apart, because set apart, you kind of, you don't think, be made holy, but that's what it means. Even, but we don't, when we hear that in English, it doesn't really hit us as that it means to be made holy. So the Father has made us holy for obedience, that we obey Him. You obey God, you're going to be holy. You love your enemy, you don't lust after women, you don't steal, you don't covet, and all those good things. You honor your father and your mother, you be a cheerful giver, all that kind of stuff, you're going to be holy. You forgive, you're going to be holy. That's obedience. You obey God, you're going to be holy. So you're set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So God took you by the Holy Spirit. He drew you into the presence of Jesus so that you prayed a prayer of salvation and of faith and of repentance, and you then were sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that's metaphorical. Jesus didn't sprinkle his actual physical blood on you. But Peter is using Old Testament Levitical terminology. When the priest purified something, they sprinkled it with blood. For example, when the tabernacle was built, sprinkled with blood. When the altar was set up, sprinkled with blood. Uh, the worshipers, when Moses ratified the covenant, he sprinkled the 12 tribes, or at least the leaders of the 12 tribes, or the people in the front rows anyway, he sprinkled them with blood. So sprinkling means to be purified. So we've been set apart from the Spirit for obedience, and being set apart means we've been made holy, and we have been purified with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's something your ordinary plain vanilla religion can't offer you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Yes, sir. Multiplied, that means you start out with a little bit, and it gets bigger and bigger. 1 Peter 1.3, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's that new birth idea again. That comes from John 3. You must be born again, a new birth. We've been born into a living hope. What, what does it mean to have a living hope? John Gill suggests two options. A hope that is fixed on the living Christ is option number one. Option number two, your hope is alive because it's not based on dead works but rather on the resurrection of Christ, could be both. Our hope lives, is not dead. We believe in a living Jesus. He's not dead. God's not dead. He is alive. A new birth into a living hope. How did we get there? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, that's the ultimate enemy of mankind is death. And if Jesus Christ can beat death and we're in Jesus, that means we beat death too. That's a living hope, folks. Now, 
hope is mentioned a lot here in the book of First Peter. There's a lot of suffering mentioned in Peter too, because the Hebrew Christians were being suffered, being persecuted pretty badly by the Jews back then, as we all know. But where there's suffering, there's hope, and we're going to look at the connection between suffering and hope through several verses in this book. Let's look at hope first in the book of First Peter. First Peter one thirteen. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, what is hope? Hope is a confident expectation of the future. It's not a mere wish. Oh, I hope I win the lottery. No, that's not what it means. It means I have a confident expectation that grace is going to be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter one twenty one. who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Of course, the hope there is tied from the, to the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus can raise himself or have God raise him from the dead, by golly, and you're going to be raised again from the dead too, that's something, that's a confident expectation of the future. You don't have to fear death anymore. First Peter 3, 5, For in the past the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. Holy women put their hope in God. First Peter 3, 5. First Peter three fifteen, But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now you look at the average Christian, and many of them are suffering all over the world. But they all have hope of that eternal life that Jesus promised. They all knew about heaven. They all will talk about heaven confidently, which is an amazing thing because you can't see heaven and death. It's kind of a mysterious process. So, First Peter is a letter of hope in the midst of suffering. Now, let me get, read you what the NIV Study Bible says about hope. Hope is not wishful thinking, but it is a settled conviction. In other words, it's a confident expectation of the future. And in fact, it's a subset of faith. Faith is the essence of thing or confidence of that unseen things are true. But hope is confidence that an unseen thing in the future is true, whereas faith is the unseen, a belief that the unseen thing, either past or present or future, is true. So hope is a subset of faith. We go to 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's in the middle of a sentence. So I'll go back and read the end of verse 3. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, in the verse 3, verse 4, and into an inheritance that is imperishable and uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, so let's connect verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, God has given us a new birth into a living hope, and he has given us new... That's verse 3. And, and verse 4, he has given us a new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance. So our new birth eventuates in, in verse 3, a living hope, and our new birth eventuates in verse 4, an inheritance. What kind of inheritance? A heavenly inheritance. It's one that's kept in heaven for you. So that's the lively hope that we're born into. The hope in the future is our inheritance in heaven. A confident expectation that we will have an unfading, un, imperishable reward in heaven. It's eternal life. Notice that an inheritance is not worked for, it is received. There is no consideration given to a testator who gives his estate to his children. They just get it. They don't have to work for it. They just get it. Eternal life is a gift, folks. It ain't something you work for. Your pitiful efforts are not anywhere near valuable enough to pay for the inheritance that you're going to get from God. You don't pay for it. You get it as, you get it as a gift. This unfading, uncorrupted, imperishable gift is kept in heaven. It's defended as in a fortress or a castle. That's what kept means. A keep, you know, used to be a, a dungeon in a, capel, uh, in, in a castle. 
So our inheritance is safe and secure in heaven despite all the insecurities we experience on earth. And of course, Peter is addressing people who are experiencing all kinds of insecurities. Verse 5, you are being protected by God's power through faith. Notice there are two sides of the protection here. One is God's power, that's God's side, and then faith is our side, our belief, our trust in that power, our trust in God's love as well as his power to protect us. We're being protected for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God's going to keep us through this persecution until the salvation comes, and I believe that salvation is, is deliverance from temporal persecution. Because that's the context of the book. Now, we're being, or the Hebrew Christians, were being re- protected for a salvation. Now, usually we think of salvation as what happens in the past when we got saved. But actually, as the NIV Study Bible points out, in Scripture, salvation can be past, present, or future. In the past, this is when a person first believes. That's the way we normally take it. Titus 3, 5, he saved us. Past tense, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. Okay, so that's past. How about the present? How is salvation going on now? Well, that's another way of saying that is present day ongoing continuous salvation is sanctification. First Peter 1 Peter 1.9, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are receiving the salvation of your souls. That is present continuous tense. It's happening right now. Peter says to his readers, you are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. So salvation is a continuous process going on in the present. Now salvation is also said to be salvation in the future. Romans 13.11, besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And I think that's probably referring to the Jewish Christians in Rome who were going to be delivered from the persecution of all the synagogues that were all over the Roman Empire and all and in Rome, which synagogues lost their power in 8070 when Rome was destroyed, because it says our salvation is nearer, nearer than when we first believed. That doesn't sound like 2,000 plus years in the future. But even if you say it's the end of the world, that means your glorification is salvation, and that's in the future. So, Salvation can be past, present, and future. That's an interesting theological point that is good to remember. Now, this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, of course, that would be the future to Peter as he was writing. question is, is when is the last time? Well, here are your options, 8070, the latter days, or it could be the end of time, as Gillian Clark suggests. You know, when Peter is talking to a specific group of Christians who are protected by God's power, and they are going to be protected until their salvation is revealed, I would say it's most likely he's talking about the last time of the Jewish power, the Jewish apostate, rabbinic, Sadducee, Sadduceic, and Pharisaic power, that wicked generation of Jews who killed the prophets and killed the Messiah. They're going to be delivered from that. That salvation will be revealed in the last days of the Jewish state. We go now to verses 6 and 7 in First Peter 1. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes through, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You rejoice in this. In what? Well, probably referring back to verse 5, according to Adam Clark. In verse 5, Peter says that you guys were being protected by God's power through faith, and you rejoice in this. 
Or Clark says you're being protected until the revelation of of the salvation that occurs in the last time. You rejoice in this because you're in the last time and the salvation's coming. You're at the end of the Jewish polity. Or it could be your salvation is getting ready to appear. You rejoice in this. How about all of that? How about all of verse 5? Let me read verse 5 again. This is what they rejoice in. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being protected by God's power through faith for salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in all that. That is something to be rejoicing, rejoicing about. You're rejoicing this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials. Now, the short time that they were struggling, in my opinion, is the time before this generation passed away, as Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse. And so for that one generation, about 40 years between 80, 30 and 80, 70, the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem persecuted the Christian Jews. Not really at 80, 30, really after Stephen's death, which some people have dated around 34. So say between 34 and running up to the Jewish war, which ended in 80, 70 when the city was burnt, Jerusalem was burnt. During that period, the Christian Jews were being persecuted very badly. Peter calls that a short time. Well, that's, you know, that's over 30 years. I, you know, short is a relative term. If I'm being persecuted for 30-something years, 35 years or so, whoa, you've had to struggle in various trials. The book of Hebrews tells us some of those trials, some of them have had their property taken and some of them were in prison. But it's a short time, Peter says. Hold on, you'll see the revelation of Jesus Christ as he comes and judges these wicked, evil persecutors of you. Now, let's make an application here. Many, if not most, trials are for a short time. And that really is true. Compared to the most of your life, God in his grace and mercy, he'll allow you to suffer trials to refine you, just as the people here in verses 6 and 7 are being refined by the trials. He'll do that, but most trials are for a short time. After all, Paul promises deliverance. Remember that? Where is it? First, I don't remember the verse where he says, There is no temptation known to man, no trial known to man, which God will not deliver you from. They seem like an eternity when you're going through a trial, but relative to your life, relative to eternity especially, they're relatively short. Now, Adam Clark says that what Peter is saying here for a short time means a short time of your life on earth compared to eternity in heaven, you have to struggle with various trials. I don't think so. I think Peter is talking about for a short time you have to deal with these persecuting, unbelieving Jews until Jesus reveals the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the appearing of Jesus Christ in judgment when he wipes out the persecutors. So for a short time, the Jewish believers have had to struggle. The NIV says, suffer grief. This is not surprising. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, all doesn't mean 100%. All a lot of times means many. Sometimes it means all categorically. All without distinction here, I think it just means many. James and Fawcett Brown says, this should not be pressed too far. Not every believer, not 100% of every believer is tried with afflictions. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, it seems like every Christian I ever met has a trial of some sort sooner or later. Maybe not severe as others, but they do have trials. Now, here's an interesting phrase. Your faith is more valuable than gold, which perishes, though refined by fire. Gold perishes? I didn't know gold perishes. Actually, gold will wear away with continuous use. You take a gold coin, after a while, it gets a little bit fudged. That's why when they sell gold coins today, they'll tell you what kind of condition it is. So gold will rub away. And it says, gold perishes though refined by fire. And I think what the meaning is here, even though gold is strong enough to stand the heat of a refiner's fire as it is boiled and bubbled so that the impurities will be put out of it, it's still not destroyed. It's just refined. 
All that heat, instead of destroying the gold, refines it. And you are more valuable than gold. So the idea is your persecutions will not destroy you. All they will do is refine you. Jewish Christians, you're going to make it. As John Gill says, the gold perishes eventually, but Christians never do. Now let's look at this word glory. The testing of your faith, the refining of your faith results in praise, glory, and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is glory? Glory is the public display of one's excellent characteristics. That's my own definition. I like it because it fits. You take the glory of a politician or a military conqueror. Everybody's saying, hey, Hosanna. Everybody's singing his praises. But of course, this is going to be the praise of God, not a human being. The NIV Study Bible says that glory is a key word in First and in Second Peter. So Peter talks a lot about glory. So when does this glory come to God, this praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? I might have already mentioned this. Here's your options, the revelation of Jesus Christ at the second coming. John Gill holds to that opinion. Or it could be Jesus is coming to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70, which is the opinion I hold to. It sounds like Peter is expecting relief soon for his readers. His comfort is cold comfort for persecuted believers if the relief comes only 2,000 plus years later. How is that going to help the persecuted Jewish believers? Well, somebody might say, well, Peter didn't know that Jesus' second coming is so far away. So he's telling the Jewish Christians, his readers, that, hey, Jesus' second coming to completely redeem the earth from its bondage to decay and so forth is coming very shortly. But the problem with that is you have an inspired apostle making a mistake and misleading his readers. Do we really? What, what are the implications for inerrancy when we say that? Pretty bad, I think. So I think he's referring to 8070. We go down to 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You love him, you love Jesus, though you have not seen him, and though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter says we have not seen Jesus. Faith is the essence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So we don't see Jesus, but we really believe in him, don't we? We know he's true. You believe in him, verse 8. You believe in him. Well, belief is just another word for have faith in. It's a synonym, actually, for have faith. Synonym for trust. You believe in him. You have faith in him. And rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. You can't even express it. You can't put it into words how great it is to love Jesus. Now, this idea of believing without seeing, John, Jesus himself brought out to Downing Thomas on the second Sunday after Resurrection Sunday when Thomas met, when Jesus met Thomas and the other apostles in that hidden room there in Jerusalem, John 20, verse 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me, talking to Thomas, you have believed when he saw the nail scars in his hands and the wounds in his side. Jesus says, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. That's you and me. That's the Jews in the diaspora. That's the Jews all through the Anatolian province, provinces of Rome. That's who had never had a chance to actually see Jesus in the flesh. Believe in him when you don't see him. How many times have you thought, boy, if I was back there and saw Jesus do all that stuff, I really would have believed in him. Well, really? There was a lot of Jews that saw all that stuff and just poo-pooed it and said, I don't care. I don't care what miracles he does. I'm not going to believe in him. So I don't think that they had that much advantage over us because of the strength of our faith. The more we believe, the more we see him, even though we can't see him. The more we understand him, even though we cannot see him. Verse 9, we rejoice because you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. How is the salvation of our souls the goal of our faith? Remember, salvation is past, present, and future. The goal of our faith is that which is at the end of the race. 
And so the complete salvation of our souls would be when we are completely sanctified, when we are glorified. So that's the ultimate end. But of course, the salvation of your souls, before we can get glorified, we've got to go through the probations of this life. And there's a current, ongoing, present process of salvation or sanctification. So I think that's probably what Peter's referring to here. The goal of your faith is to undergo this present process of salvation, of sanctification. He's not referring back to the fact that our justification when we got born again was the goal of our faith. The goal of our faith is that we get sanctified and sanctified more and more and more. He's probably not referring to future glorification, but that's what the end result of current salvation, current sanctification gives you. Now, Peter says, because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What what about your body? Well, souls includes the body. Soul means the whole person. Like you say, there were 150 souls on the airplane that went down. Are there 50,000 souls in the football stadium? Obviously, there are bodies that went down with those souls. Obviously, there are bodies with the souls in the football stadium. The body is not excluded from heaven. Resurrection of the body, that's in all the creeds because it is a a fundamental tenet of Christian orthodoxy. We go now to 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation, the salvation of your souls, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. Now, when Peter says the prophets, he, of course, includes Old Testament-inspired authors who wrote the Old Testament, I'm sure. For example, David wasn't really a prophet, but he wrote a lot of psalms. For example, Job was not a prophet, but he wrote a lot of psalms and so forth. So basically, the Old Testament scriptures. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied... Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, says, No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, being prophesied, so prophesying means to be moved by God through the Holy Spirit. They prophesied about the grace that would come to you. That's the grace that came in Jesus. They searched and carefully investigated. Now, this is very interesting. The NIV Study Bible says the fact that the apostle that the prophets search shows that inspiration does not imply omniscience. They could see a prophecy, they prophesied, but they didn't know what the prophecy meant exactly. As the NIV Study Bible says, the prophets didn't always understand the implications of their prophecies. Here's what John Gill says, quote, The incarnation and suffering of Jesus Christ and the redemption procured by him from mankind were made known in a general way by the prophets. But they themselves did not know the time when these things were to take place, nor the people among and by whom he was to suffer, etc. Well, the incarnation and suffering of Jesus Christ, that would be the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, would, would be Old Testament prophets that prophesied of that. By his stripes we were healed. He bore his suffering on the cross. He bore iniquity, all of that in the suffering servant passages. So they knew that there was a Messiah coming, or they should have known. Well, the prophets did know that there was a Messiah coming to relieve the people of their sins and so forth. But they didn't know when he was coming. That's why they had to search. What did this mean? What did this prophecy mean? Now, Peter in 1 Peter 1.11 says that these Old Testament prophets inquired into what time that the Holy Spirit was indicated about the Messiah to come. What time? Well, Daniel actually predicted the time that Jesus was going to be killed. This is in the famous Daniel 9.24 passage, the 70 weeks passage, which I understand is very, very controversial, very difficult. I, my version, uh, my, my interpretation of it is the prediction comes right into 26, right in the middle of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized at the end of the 69th week. And then the 70th week is when Jerusalem was destroyed. It's a great prophecy. That should be studied with a great deal of attention. But that's the prediction of when, Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city 
to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, rebellion of mankind, put a stop to sin. Jesus dies on the cross to wipe away iniquity. Oh, there's the end of sin. To bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to know the most holy place. I won't go into that, but that, that's enough to give you the feel that Daniel was talking about what time? At the end of 70 weeks. And what circumstances? Well, there's a few circumstances here. Wiping away iniquity. So they had to interpret what the 70 weeks mean and what does it mean to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity? Here's what Gill says concerning what the Old Testament prophets knew about the circumstances of the coming Messiah. Quote, it would be with respect to the nations of the world a time of profound peace. And right there I would like to say I'm not theologian enough to know why the Old Testament prophets prophesied a time of profound peace when the Messiah would come. I'm not sure what scripture Gill's referring to there, but let's take his word for it. This would be a time of profound peace when the Messiah came with respect to the Jews, that it would be a time of great blindness, ignorance, unbelief, and hardness of heart, that such would be that generation or age for wickedness and barbarity as could not be declared and expressed. Again, I'm not exactly sure where that's prophesied either. And that few would believe the report of the gospel and that the Messiah would be rejected of men and be wounded, bruised, and put to death. And that comes from Isaiah 50, whatever it is, 53, I think it is. Suffering servant passages. And with respect to the Gentiles, that the gospel would be preached to them and that they should seek to Christ, be gathered to him and hope and trust in him and that the followers of the Messiah should be persecuted. That could be referring to Isaiah, the Galilee of the Gentiles prophecy. So followers of the Messiah should be persecuted and greatly distressed and yet comforted and sustained. And this should be the face of the times and the state of things when the salvation should be revealed. All right, so there was a lot of Old Testament prophecy that prophesied the Messiah coming, but still there was a lot that was left up in the dark left to faith, if you will, and the prophets were curious enough to try to figure out what it was. Now notice that the Spirit of Christ was testifying in these Old Testament prophets. Verse 11, 1 Peter 1. They inquired, these Old Testament prophets, inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. The Holy Spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament. That shows that Jesus was in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit of Christ could mean the Holy Spirit sent by Christ, or it could be the Holy Spirit ministered through Christ. The, but the, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. He's also called the promise of the Father. So he's identified with the Father and with Jesus. Because after all, they're all three persons of the Trinity. At any rate, this verse shows that Christ was existing before the New Testament because his Spirit was in the Old Testament prophets. Now, this Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets, prophets testified in advance to the Messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. Now, the fact that the Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would suffer was totally missed by the Jewish rabbis. You don't have to do a study of the Gospels very long before you see that Jesus everywhere was fighting this idea of a suffering Messiah, especially amongst his own disciples. They couldn't handle, handle it. Jesus tells Peter at Caesarea Philippi, get ready, we're going down to Jerusalem where I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, 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 may it never be. They couldn't handle that. All the rabbis could see was a glorious military or political Messiah. But suffering is a basic theme in the Bible the rabbi somehow missed. Psalm 22, the whole psalm, shows suffering of the Messiah. We'll look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? There's a suffering Messiah passage. How about Isaiah 52:13 through 53:12? The whole suffering servant passage. I'll read you just one example verse. Isaiah 52:14. just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. That's the suffering Messiah. He got beat up. Jesus, our Messiah, got beat up. 
Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Does that sound like a military political messiah? But it was right there in the scriptures. Somehow the Jewish rabbis missed it. Zechariah 13, 7, Sword awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. What kind of Messiah has a sword raised against him? Strike the shepherd. What kind of Messiah gets struck with a sword? And the sheep will be scattered. What kind of Messiah has his following, followers scattered all over the place? Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. Chief priests and scribes be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. I've already mentioned this to you before. But he, Jesus, turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns with man's. I know there's lots of other scriptures we could quote. This idea of a suffering Messiah was everywhere, and Peter mentions it here that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about messianic sufferings. They also prophesied about the glories that would follow sufferings. Now, this is one of the great themes in the New Testament. Glory always follows on sufferings for the elect. Glory follows upon sufferings. And who's our supreme example of that? Who's the supreme example of that? Jesus. He suffered, and then he was raised to glory. All right, well, let's see if we can find some examples of Jesus' suffering first, and then we'll look at glory, which is a big theme in the Bible, as well as in Peter. 1 Peter 3, 17, for, well, verse 18, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins, 1 Peter 4, 13. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, 1 Peter 5, 1. Therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, he saw it, he, you know, he, he saw Jesus being persecuted. He ran from the Garden of Gethsemane, but you know, he saw him be arrested. Of course, he saw all the persecution of Jesus before that. He was an eyewitness of it. All right, well, that's the sufferings of Jesus. The NIV Study Bible says this, Christians in union with Christ also suffer and then are raised to glory. That's the good news. Now, as I said, glory is a basic theme in the Bible, as the NIV Study Bible points out. It's also a basic theme in the book of 1 Peter. Well, let's start with a couple of passages in the New Testament. John 17:22. I have given them the glory. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer on the Friday night before he got killed. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. Public manifestation of one's excellent characteristics that was shared from Jesus to the Christians. I have given them glory because we're going to get glorified, raised, exhibited to the universe as the new Adam, as the way human beings should have behaved when they were created holy by God. Luke 24, 26, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? They're suffering first and glory second. That's a theme. Now let's look in 1 Peter and look at that same theme, suffering and glory. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, he was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you. The end of the times, of course, there's an example of last time, end of the times, it's talking about the end of the Jewish age, because that's when Jesus was revealed. He was revealed for you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So when Jesus raised, that was a radiant, shining, effulgent glory because raising from the dead, that's something that people don't do. First Peter 4.13, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. So here we have the participation in Jesus' life, a koinonia, a sharing in the sufferings of the Messiah. So you, when you're persecuted, you share in the sufferings of the Messiah. 
But guess what? You get to rejoice at the revelation of his glory when he's raised from the dead. You get to participate in that because you're identified with him. You rise from the dead too. First Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So glory is the end of the Christians in the midst of all the talk of suffering, which Peter's going to do. Let's don't forget. There's good news too. There's glory. We go down to verse 12, 1 Peter 1, and we'll finish up this section. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. It was revealed to the Old Testament prophets that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. They were not serving themselves but you. These Old Testament prophets were. Why? Because the New Testament Christians were in the age when all the promises would be fulfilled. And so the Old Testament prophets were not serving themselves because their prophecies weren't fulfilled in the Old Testament. They didn't get to see the fulfillment. So they were serving the New Testament Christians who got to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's how the Old Testament prophets are said to be serving the New Testament Christians. These things have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. When was the Holy Spirit sent from heaven? On the day of Pentecost. Peter was there to see that as the NIV study Bible points out. He saw, that's when he gave his famous Pentecostal sermon. So he saw the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. That was a fulfillment of prophecy, Joel 2, fulfillment of Joel 2. Angels desire to look into these things. The NIV study Bible says look means look intently. Angels desire to examine these things closely. Well, this shows that angels don't know everything that's going on about the plan of salvation any more than you and I do sometimes. Angels are trying to see these things, but guess what? We get to see them because they're revealed to us. It was revealed to the Old Testament prophets, and the fulfillment is happening right here under our eyes, Peter says. That's good news. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. In our next audio, we'll take up 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, which I'll entitle, Called to be Holy. After all, we've been born again into a living hope. We've been called to suffer with the Messiah, and then we're called into glory well, what's the purpose of all that? The goal of our faith was our sanctification, Peter says. Well, all of that works together to make us holy, separated from the world, and dedicated to God. Persecution will do that. Suffering will do that. It'll make you holy. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next audio. I hope you tune in for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>